Okay, cool. So it's the audio that, that I'll be saving, not the video. So uh, the goal of, of this class, uh, I call this my fundamentals of, of Islam class. This is going to go from Al-Fatiha through Ayah 39 of Al-Baqarah. And the outline will make more sense once we get into Al-Baqarah itself. But we're going to jump right into, into the material. First, uh, some preliminary uh, points about learning, and then some preliminary points about the Quran, and then getting into the uh, the text uh, uh, itself. So, so there's uh, multiple types of learning, and you can sum up uh, them into two routes. One is what we call informational learning. The other is transformational learning, or inform infor informative learning versus transformative learning. And the idea uh, is probably easy to, to figure out just from the words themselves. Uh, but much of our community learning today is focused on informative learning. So what is informative learning? It's let me gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge, and that will benefit me. And, and the end result we don't realize is that if you are acquiring knowledge without very direct practice, then the knowledge is not only not benefiting you, it is potentially harming you. And what I mean by this is that if I am gaining knowledge and I'm not applying it, then my nafs, my baser appetite is going to take the knowledge. And the knowledge is going to help me become a bigger version of whatever I am, which means my good uh, uh, attributes will become more, but my bad attributes will become stronger. And the more knowledge I get, the more this will happen. It's as though, imagine physically I'm this size in terms of knowledge, I'm this size. And as I get more informational knowledge, I keep growing and growing into a larger version of myself with all my good traits, but also all my bad traits. Now, transformational knowledge means I'm taking one tiny bit of knowledge and I'm digesting it. And then that, I'm chewing on it, I'm reflecting upon it, and that will begin the process, the small process of personal transformation. And to really put it into practice, it took Omar, may Allah be pleased with him, as much as 16 years just to get Al-Baqarah done. Al-Baqarah, you can literally read in, in about 20 minutes in English translation but it took him 16 years to have it implemented where he has the entire practice of al-Baqarah implemented within himself. And, and so in my own study, uh, uh, I probably spent about five years just focused on the first 20 ayahs of, of al-Baqarah, which is still a faster speed than him. Uh, uh, just focus on thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly understanding those ayahs. And, and so we have two metaphors in the Quran that parallel or contrast with each other. One is the donkey carrying books, and the other is the adiyat, the thoroughbred warhorse racehorse. And so what is the nature of a donkey? A donkey is that you have the donkey and the donkey cart guy who's leading it, but if the donkey wants to make a turn, it's going to make a turn. And then the donkey cart guy has to pull it back. The donkey's moving forward. The donkey wants to make another turn. <laughs> it will do so, 
and then you have to pull it back. And that's the nature of the donkey. And thus, the risk we, we get, we have, by only acquiring knowledge is that we become a donkey carrying books, meaning we are still ourselves, still doing whatever we want, still of use in some capacities, but still fundamentally we do whatever we want. And so when I'm saying that knowledge makes you grow into a larger version of yourself, what I am saying is that much of the, I'm saying this as a teacher, much of the pursuit of knowledge in our community is an exercise in narcissism, as opposed to an exercise in submission. And then we have the thoroughbred racehorse, the war horse. And think about how does a racehorse operate? The rider, if the rider is telling the racehorse to go faster, it's going to try to go faster. And if it's going at full speed and the rider is telling it to go even faster, it's going to try to go faster. Um, no matter what, it doesn't know how to say no to the rider, to the one who is commanding it. And so Surat al-Adiyat is speaking about these racehorses, these war horses. I mean, I'm calling them, they were war horses back then, now we use them for races. Uh, and so back then, uh, so, or what is taking place, uh, Allah is speaking about those, those horses, and then it says, Allah says, man is ungrateful. And the point is that that is what we're supposed to be like. That if Allah says go, we go. If Allah says stop, we stop. And that should be the consequence of increased knowledge. The consequence of increased knowledge should be increased submission. That should be the consequence. Um, but like I said, very often the consequence of increased knowledge is increased narcissism, yet we think we are gaining knowledge. And so that's one point to consider. We have informational knowledge, we have transformational knowledge, we have informative, transformative. There's still some benefit to informative knowledge, because I'm going to give you some, some, some basic preliminaries about, about the material anyway. And then our focus, however, is transformative knowledge, which means we're going to do little tiny amounts. Uh, the hard part of transformative knowledge is that we have such a thirst right now to just acquire vast amounts of knowledge that it becomes unsatisfying. There are some students with whom our weekly class is five minutes, like they come to my office on a weekly basis to, to, to learn and bam, here's your lesson, five minutes, uh, which might be a very, very vital lesson, but uh, in terms of time it takes, it's a very, very small amount of time. Um, uh, also, in terms of ground rules, uh, all of you should, and this applies to future people joining the course, all of you should feel completely free to interrupt, not only with questions, but also even to push back on anything. Um, you're also welcome to disagree. And I mean, Jonas in the class, so, so Jonas especially right, uh, 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 permitted to disagree. Uh, honey, Jonas is my daughter. Okay, so, so that is uh, one point uh, about knowledge itself. Now, some preliminaries about, about uh, the material. First and foremost, uh, when we are looking at uh, what we're covering, uh, whether we're talking about uh, Al-Fatiha or Al-Fatiha or Al-Baqarah, for each class, you know, I encourage you to take as many notes as possible. Um, one of your obstacles is going to be, you already know this, you already know this, you already know this. If you find yourself feeling that way, take even more notes. Because I can assure you, unless you have taken classes with me or any of my students, you have not approached the material this way. 
right? I mean, if you're taking classes with Murphy down in Dallas, then maybe you've taken the material this way, but otherwise, um, um, you have not, uh, this, this will be a very unique experience. And, and so part of the process is to shift our approach from informative learning where, okay, you're giving me a fact that I already know to transformative learning, which is now you're trying to see how these different facts fit together as you're digesting them. Because otherwise it's like saying, well, okay, you're, the food you're giving me has rice and it has beef and it has such and such spices. Okay, I've already had this before. You know, that's, that's what uh, often happens when people are, have taken many classes are taking another class. They feel like they've already taken it before, even though the meal is completely different. Okay. Uh, jumping right in. Al-Fatiha. Al-Fatiha, we often translate as the opening. More accurately, it translates as the opener. And, oh, by the way, today, because this is the first class, um, I'll just focus more on myself speaking. But uh, my approach, those of you who've taken my classes before know that my, my approach is actually discussion-oriented. So get ready to discuss, even though it's early on a Saturday morning. It's also early for me. So it's it more accurately translates as the opener. And when you think of that as a translation of Al-Fatiha, it shifts the, force, the focus of Al-Fatiha from a window to a flashlight. If we call Al-Fatiha the opening, then it's like the introduction, the first chapter, the beginning. When you translate it as the opener, now in Arabic, this is what we call, or in grammar, this is what we call the active participle, ism uh, fa'il. And so the idea here is that now it's become something active. And one basic principle to remember for today, we're going to go much deeper very quickly today, is that all of Islam is understood through the window, through the key, through the flashlight, flashlight's a better word, of Al-Fatiha. All of Islam, including the Quran, including the Prophet, peace be upon him, including the Islamic sciences, are understood through Al-Fatiha. All the happy ayahs, all the frightening ayahs are understood through Al-Fatiha. And so, so from a pedagogical lens, what is this telling us? That very often, if I'm reading the text, I'm reading the text as myself. Yeah. Which means what? That me, Omar, I'm reading the text and I'm bringing in all of my, my training, but I'm also bringing in all of my biases. So whenever there's text, there's also pretext. Yeah. But when we make it into a vector format, yeah, where I have Al-Fatiha as my flashlight, and now I'm looking through the text through the lens of Al-Fatiha, now what I'm also doing is I'm regulating and mitigating a lot of my biases. And so if we're looking at passages on war, we look at them through the lens of Al-Fatiha. When we're looking at passages on marriage divorce, we look at it through the lens of Al-Fatiha. When we're looking at the text through historical narratives, we look at it through the lens of Al-Fatiha. And that is going to reduce my own imposition of myself on the text. Yeah. Let me give you a different example to help make sense of this. Uh, if you read the text really fast, meaning in translation, for example, 
you are going to skip past the depth of the text and only get a few of the highlights. And the end result you're going to feel is that the Quran basically says you have to believe in God. And if you do, you go to paradise. And if you don't, you go to hell. Done. And that will be the result. And it's the equivalent of eating food really fast. You're going to miss out on all the flavor, on all the texture. Uh, you might even miss out on all the nutrition. Okay. Now, one of our blessings of our tradition is the emphasis on recitation. That when you're reciting, you are forced to go slowly. I mean, I'm not really a fan of the super slow recitation that people have uh, on stage. I like the speed of namaz. But the point is that when you have recitation where you have to pronounce every letter, that forces a certain type of reflection. It's built into the whole tradition itself that you are forced to go through the Quran slowly, which means you are forced to then reflect. And so as you're going to see, as we go through our material, we have 46 ayahs, the first seven ayahs of, uh, of uh, Arya al-Fatiha, the next 39 ayahs. Uh, it may take us 46 weeks to make it go through the whole material, uh, even though in terms of content, we're going through about six pages. So, so the emphasis then on learning is to go slowly and let the Quran speak to us on its terms. The more slowly you go, the more you are allowing the Quran itself to speak and the less you are allowing yourself to speak. And then when you add this vector format where you are looking through the lens of a Fatiha at the text, you're also mitigating yourself further. Now, that is also revealing one of the secrets of how the whole tradition operates, that fundamentally your whole experience of life is as though you have a compass and the needle is either pointing towards you or it is pointing towards Allah. And that is the fundamental journey through life all the way up through the day of judgment, up to the day of judgment is by the end of our lives, we want this compass to be facing towards Allah. But just about everything around us in our contemporary era is telling us to face the compass towards ourselves. Find your fulfillment, you know, be progressive, be moderate, whatever the case may be in terms of theme, people throw in a lot of vocabulary that, you know, they may or may not know what it means. But the point is, this is an the essential journey that you'll hear me over and over again say that this battle is between surrender to Allah as though it's an erasure of yourself, but an erasure of your pride, whereas you will find yourself wanting to unintentionally surrender to yourself. So even when we're speaking about love of dunya as, as an obstacle, love of dunya is actually a love of the self. And at all these points, we will visit more and more inshallah over the course of these these next few weeks now so al-fatiha uh, as the opener now uh moving further in terms of the relationship between all this material and and foundations i'm going to usually i would write this on the whiteboard i gotta i have I've disconnected my whiteboard my whiteboard um so i'm gonna type it on the screen if we speak of uh, the relationship between Al-Fatiha and the Islamic sciences. Here's how it plays out. First, the, the general Islamic sciences. And again, this is right now, this is informative. 
rather than transformative, but you'll find it satisfying to learn. So these are the essential Islamic sciences. Those of you taking classes with me, you've already heard this from before. Okay. There are the practical. Uh, let me, uh, already messed up, sorry, retry. Okay, the Islamic sciences. Okay, there are the reference materials or source materials. Then we have the practical sciences and then we have the abstract. Okay, so the reference are three. So it's basically Arabic. Quran and the prophets, peace be upon them. So that's the reference material. <laughs> now, what do we mean by this? Uh, Arabic, uh, as you know, is the primary, but not exclusive, primary language of Islamic scholarship. If you do Islamic learning here, you're going to think it's the only language of Islamic scholarship. But Turkish, Farsi, Urdu have been major languages of, of uh, Ottoman Turkish, uh, have been major languages of Islamic knowledge and Islamic scholarship and such. But the foundational one, of course, is, is uh, Arabic. Well, the Quranic sciences include everything that you would think. It would be the history of the compilation of the Quran. It would be the recitation of the Quran. It would be the tafsir, the commentary of the Quran, everything about the Quran. That's reference material. So, and then the prophet includes the sunnah and the hadith and the companions as well. Now, what is the essential difference between the sunnah and the hadith? First, this depends upon the school of interpretation. In the Hanbali school, the Hanbali school of law, they're the same thing. Sunnah equals uh, 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 hadith. In the other schools, sunnah is this living practice that is handed down by action from generation to generation. Okay. And it's emphasis on that which is prescribed. Sunnah is this living practice that is handed down from generation to generation by way of action with emphasis on what is prescribed. Okay. Hadith, however, are the raw material reports of everything about the Prophet, peace be upon him. Everything he said, everything he did, everything he seemed to witness giving approval. <coughs> That's Hadith. Okay. So, how do you learn Sunnah by living as a Muslim uh, if you have the privilege in a Muslim family, if you have the privilege in a Muslim community? Then it is being preserved by living practice. And the easiest example of that is Salah, is Namaz. That how did every single one of you and myself learn how to pray? You might have started with a video, you might have started with a book, but we don't have a manual on how to pray. We often say that the Quran doesn't tell you how to pray, you go to the Hadith. That's actually wrong. The Hadith will tell you how to pray. The Hadith will give you 400 narrations on all the different parts of prayer, but there's no Hadith that tells you how to pray. How did you learn how to pray? Well, the Prophet says, pray as you see me pray, peace be upon him. That's how the companions learned, by watching him, by seeing him, by asking him. That's how the Tabi'in, those who came after them, learned. That's how the Tabi'in, -tabi that's how uh, they learned. And go forward 1,400 years, that's how we all learned. You might start with a video, you might start with a book. How did you actually learn how to pray? Uh, from praying with people, from being told by people, here's how you do it. And so this is one of the open miracles of Islam. We like to say the embryo and all that stuff. One of the open miracles of Islam is the preservation of the prayer 
without any manual on how to do it. There's no central manual in the sense that we have the Quran as a central book. There's no central manual on how to pray. Our world, Muslim world, has every level of literacy and illiteracy. It has every level of socioeconomic strength or, or, or poverty. And you go to Hajj and everybody prays the same way. And all the even tiny differences, you know, do I do this with my finger? Do I do this with my finger? All those are part of the preserved prayer. And everybody prays the same way. This is an open miracle of Islam that nobody else has. The closest that anyone has to this would be the Catholics. And one of their miracles is that they have, a, they've persisted with a central uh, authority. But even um, if you know the history of Catholicism, they haven't had just one Pope for 2000 years. They've had periods where there've been three Popes and such. But the point is that this is one of our open miracles right there for everybody to see. Yeah. But this is the lesson, the point is on Sunnah. How is Sunnah handed down? by living practice. Yeah. Whereas Hadith is more historically the realm of scholars. In our era of, of liberal education, by liberal education, what I mean is everything is open, everything is accessible to everybody. That's what we mean by the liberal arts. Uh, <clears throat> the idea here is that everyone now has access to Hadith and everybody wants to study Hadith. And that's where we have the rise of a group called the Salafis which we'll talk about uh, if we get to it later on, essentially. And, but the point is that Hadith, historically, were the realm of scholars, and Sunnah was verifying the Hadith. We would often think that's Hadith that verify the Sunnah. It's where do you find Islam? It's in the living practice, not in the books on the shelf. And those points we'll, we'll, we'll also explore further. Okay, so Arabic, Quran, Prophet, and the prophet peace upon him is the sunnah, it is the hadith, and it is the sahaba. So what is the fundamental difference between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam? Ask a lay Sunni, a lay Shia, a lay teacher, they'll tell you it's who should have been the Khalifa after the death of the prophet peace upon him. No, that's wrong. That debate didn't come for a hundred years after the death of the prophet peace upon him. There's no Sunnis or Shias at the time of the prophet's death. Those things are formed later on very much in response to each other and in response to other forces. So the actual difference between Sunni and Shia is to whom, upon whom, do we rely to learn about the Prophet in the Quran, peace be upon him. And so for Sunnis, we rely upon the companions as our primary source to learn about the Prophet in the Quran, peace be upon him. Shias rely upon the Imams to learn about the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. Now, all the Imams in Shia tradition are revered people, excuse me, in Sunni tradition. But what I'm saying is that the effective difference is who is it that is teaching me anything about the Prophet, peace be upon him? It's the Sahaba. Who is it in Shia tradition that's teaching me anything I rely upon? about the Prophet, peace be upon him, it's the Imams. I mean, there are other secondary differences, but that's the essential, real difference. And then we, in the Sunni community, we spread all kinds of bizarre questions and rumors about Shias in the Shia community. They spread a whole lot of bizarre questions about us, but that's the point I want you to consider. Okay, but when we're talking in Sunni tradition about the Prophet, we mean the Sunnah, the Hadith, and 
the Sahaba, actually it's a Sunni, the Hadith, the Sahaba, the Tabi'in, and the Tabi Tabi'in. It's actually all of those. Now, so that's the reference sciences. Then we have the practical sciences. The practical sciences are also three. So it is Islamic law, purification, character, manners, and justice. Okay. So Islamic law, Sharia, is the word for Islamic law. Again, depending on who you're talking to, what is the difference between Sharia and Fiqh? Sharia is effectively the source material, meaning the reference material in level one, Arabic, Quran, Prophet, peace be upon him. Fiqh is the process of interpreting that material with emphasis on action. That's what Islamic law is. Islamic law is selecting the aspect of Islam that is focused on action. The first step of action is what are the basic things you have to claim with your tongue to believe. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah amantu billahi wa malaikati wa kutubihi wa rasuli. Other basic things, which as is relevant, we'll get to them. And then everything else is action. And so what is Islamic law answering? How do you make your actions valid for your meeting before Allah Ta'ala? Okay. So it's focused on action. Islamic law is not claiming to increase you in your iman, except only to say that you want to make your actions as perfect as possible. Okay. And this raises the question of context, which, which is also a big part of, uh, of Islamic law. But fiqh, the word meaning interpretation, fiqh in our common parlance is the interpretation of categories one, two, and three in the Islamic sciences. That is Islamic law. Purification, tazkiyah, purification, this is where you find uh, the, the Sufis and such. Here, the focus is on the condition of the heart. So Islamic law is focused on the body, is focused on actions. Tazkiyah is focused on the heart, and it's on focused on purification of the heart. This is one of the historical Islamic sciences, as old as Islamic law. The Sufi schools come much later than the legal schools, but Historically, this is all one. It wasn't even separate sciences. They, they articulated sciences later on. And so law focused on the body, focused on action, purification. Tazkia is focused on the heart, purification of the heart, clarity of the heart. And then we have character, manners, and justice, which is essentially how do you behave with other people. So, so this is uh, akhlaq, character, adab, Manners and of course justice is adal those types of things. So akhlaq adal or adab and adal. And so here is essentially how do you conduct yourself with other people? This also was a big field which doesn't get as much focus, which is interesting because the Prophet peace be upon him is reported to have said, "I do not come except to perfect character." Okay, and the last. So we have the uh, the practical. Uh, we have the reference, we have the practical, and then we have the abstract. Okay, the abstract sciences um, are 
geology, history, and philosophy. So one question I received, what's the difference between character and manners? Great question. Character is that you have to speak the truth, even if it's bitter. Character is you have to keep your promises. Character is that you have to keep your trusts. Like if someone shares a secret with you or shares property with you, you have to keep your trusts, all those things. Manners is how do you say it politely? Uh, manners is sometimes it's better to remain quiet than to actually speak the truth. And so that's would be the difference between character and manners. Yeah. And then, and by all means, everybody, that was a direct message I received. Uh, by all means, everyone, feel free, please, to ask questions. Normally, class, my target is to go to 30 minutes and then try to stop it as soon as possible after that. Uh, this, we're going to go a little bit longer, but it'll still always be less than an hour. So, so theology, uh, character is application of manners, or are they independent? Um, they overlap, but think of manners as the refinement of character, or manners uh, uh, as the manners would be more the application of character as opposed to character being the application of manners. Hey, Jonah, let me know if that makes sense. Okay. Great. You should, uh, Jonah, that message you just sent to me directly, you just sent to everybody. Okay. So, uh, part of the fun of this class is you're going to get to see me banter with my older daughter. Okay, so uh, uh, theology has itself three parts. Aqida, Usuluddin, Kalam. Aqida is that short list of things that I have to take as concrete, but they're from the unseen. That short list of things in the unseen that I have to take as concrete. Aqidah is essentially saying, if you believe la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, here's what else you have to believe. Angels, books, messengers, the last day, rising from the dead. You know, believe in Allah and all of his attributes. Um, believe in and aspire to fulfill his commands. Those types of things. Yeah. So Aqidah, we often literally translates as uh, like a permanent knot. And what is it? It's that which ties you into the deen, into the community. And so aqida in English, we would often translate as creed. But it's those things in the unseen that I am to take as concrete. Okay? Very, very short list. And then usuluddin and kalam, they tend to overlap each other, but in theory, usuluddin is focused on how do how does the entire thing that we call Islam, how does it all fit together? How does it make sense as a unified whole? What are its parts? That's Usuluddin. Kalam is what in English, so Usuluddin in English, we might call it synthetic or systematic uh, theology. Um, uh, kalam, we perhaps call it dialectic theology, which is essentially our responses to other people's questions, our responses to other people's challenges. So, so an example is a, a famous Kalam issue is back in the 800s. There was this huge debate, which today sounds like nonsense, but it was a big debate back then. What is the relationship between Allah and the Quran? 
was the Quran created or did it internally exist? It appears in the earth in the year 610 of our calendar, but when did it ever, does they have a beginning? Because if it has a beginning, then it has an end. If it has an end, then maybe there's a time it doesn't apply. But why is this debate coming up? Because Christians used to debate what is the relationship between the father and the son? And in Christianity, the father is God, the son is the word. So the parallel in Islam is not Allah and the prophet, peace be upon him, it's, it's Allah and the Quran, the word of Allah. So in Christianity, they're debating, is the son eternal or created? And so the conclusion in the version of Christianity that one, Nicene Creed, is that they are co-eternal, which is Jesus is also a creator as God. And so that seeped into our tradition. And in fact, if I remember correctly, the Christian debate is coming from Greek thought, a question the Greeks were wrestling with, you know, even hundreds of years before them. And so that seeped into Christianity and then from Christianity to seeped into us, where it was affecting people's faith. And an example of that today would be what do Muslims believe about evolution? You know, 400 years ago, 400 years from now, people think, what kind of dumb question was that? Why do people care? Why? Because if I believe in evolution or not, it changes nothing about my practice. It's an abstract issue. But it's such an issue that it affects people's faith because it has consequences in what I believe about science. It has consequences in what do I believe about church versus state. And so that becomes uh, a big debate for, for a whole lot of people. And so, so in the context of, of, of uh, Kalam, it's our answers to questions that are coming from the outside. A lot of times, Kalam is our answers to accusations against us. You know, look at, uh, you know, here's, you know, uh, here's a challenge to the Quran. You know, what are the, what are those disconnected letters all about? Or, you know, um, how come in one place in the Quran it says, you know, a day feels like a thousand years, but, um, uh, but the day of judgment will feel like 50,000 years. How do you reconcile all this? Or the Quran says that Zulkarnain reached the end of the earth and he saw the sun rising from the water. If that doesn't sound like um, something authentic. Anyway, those would be kalam is challenges against us as well that we are then responding to. That's we call it dialectical or argumentative uh, theology. So that's theology. All of it is abstract. It doesn't change anything about my practice. It may help give me clarity. That's part of the part of the reason it exists. These are the debaters trying to protect people from the arguments from the outside. Second, history is abstract. History, of course, includes Sira and Ertigral and whatever else, but history is abstract. You may derive lessons from moments in history, but history itself is not trying to give you lessons. History is basically saying, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. And then you try to put together a narrative of how those events all tie together. Um, and someone else might try to derive lessons from the Sida or lessons from, from something else, you know, like Ertigral, Osman, and whatever that new series is, Al Arsalan. And so, so history is also abstract. 
And then philosophy is also abstract. Philosophy, the difference between philosophy and theology is philosophy, philosophy is more free speculation, not necessarily related to salvation. So some of the famous philosophers have names like Al-Farabi, who are trying to figure out through philosophy what is an ideal city, what is an ideal polity, and such. Okay, those are the Islamic sciences, nine essential Islamic sciences. Within them, there are also subcategories like logic and such, but those are the core Islamic sciences. Source material, practical sciences, that's where that actually affects us. And then the abstract sciences that are important, but do not affect, affect a layperson. Now, all of the Islamic sciences, sciences trace themselves back to the prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. So, if you think of this in the reverse, the better I know the Prophet and the Quran, the more I will know the essence of the Islamic sciences. The more thoroughly I know the Prophet and the Quran, which includes the Sahaba, Tabi'in, Tabi, Tabi, the more thoroughly I will understand the essence of the Islamic sciences. And the Prophet and the Quran. So we have Islamic sciences. Trace themselves back to the Prophet and the Quran, which trace themselves back to the Fatiha, which means what? The more thoroughly I know Al Fatiha the more I know the essence of the whole of the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. The more thoroughly I know the Prophet and the Quran, the more I know the essence of the Islamic sciences. Now, Al-Fatiha traces itself back to the Basmalah. The Basmalah is the name for Bismillah Rahman Rahim. So the more thoroughly I know the Basmala, then the more I know the essence of Al-Fatiha. The more thoroughly I know Al-Fatiha, the more I know the essence of the Prophet and the Quran. Peace be upon him. The more thoroughly I know the Prophet and the Quran, the more I know the essence of the Islamic sciences. And then the Basmala, oh snap, this is getting exciting, traces itself back to the Ba. Eh. You know, at the beginning, B a bit is Bismillah Rahman Rahim. And what does the ba mean? The ba means in or with, meaning connection. And so what we're saying here is that the essence of the essence of the essence of the essences of all of our material is the focus on connection. If you understand that, you understand one of the most important essences of all of Islam is connection. So why is there so much focus on keeping the ties with your relatives? It's because of this emphasis on connection. Why is there so much focus on taking care of your neighbors? It's this emphasis on connection. If you look at all the good deeds, they are reinforcing connections. If you look at all the bad deeds, they are straining or breaking connections. If I lie to you, then I'm straining my relationship with you. If I abuse you, then I'm not only straining my relationship with you, I'm compelling you to break our connection. 
All of this is all about connection. And now what's fascinating is that if you think of marketing in the modern era, it's all about focus on the self and alienation. That if you look at the increases of technology, there's there is much good in technology, like the fact that we're having this class. But a major consequence of it, especially with the increases of social media and such, is alienation separation, where someone would rather look at a screen than talk to a person physically in front of them, like so many of my undergrads. And so connection is one of the central themes of the entirety of the tradition. And so that is the core lesson of the day today. Okay, so one is Al-Fatih has the opener, but the core lesson of today is that the Bach is the foundation of it all. Um, this is a teaching attributed to Ali, may Allah be pleased with him. And then, um, and so this essence is connection. So now an optional assignment that I recommend for every single one of you, and if you like, we could even go through it independently together, is look at your 25 primary relationships. And it's not necessarily limited to human beings. It may be that your phone is more of your relation than, you know, some random cousin. And so the point is, look at your 25 primary relationships. That's the first part of the assignment. And just list them all out. And then part two is try to categorize them. Here's my intimate circle. Here are people that I pay attention to a lot. Here's people that I focus on just because I have to, whatever the case may be. And then once you've done those two parts, listing it out the 25 and then categorizing them, um, you know, perhaps by level of proximity or intimacy, then see what needs to be improved. Good. And if you like, and so that's a highly recommended assignment. And then if you like, we can work on it together to see how to uh, uh, organize things, re what needs to be adjusted in relationships, inshallah. Okay. Uh, and I think that is everything for today. Any questions about anything at all? I probably put all of you to sleep, so. No questions. Going once. Going twice. All righty. Then, inshallah, we will stop here. And we will continue next time. Let me just make sure that the uh, next time works for me. I always confuse dates. Next time on the 18th, we are good, inshallah. All righty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, Allah, wa bihamdika. Praise and gratitude are to you. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. We bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. One or two, we can return to you. Okay, may Allah reward you all, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.